As you're working your way back, open your scriptures to 1 John chapter 5. Today we're going to be picking up our reading in verse 18 through verse 21, which concludes the fifth chapter. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful you're a God who has spoken. We've alluded to this numbers of times already today that thankful that you've made your truth, your eternal truth, available to us. And now in the time that we have together, we pray that your Holy Spirit would carry out that teaching ministry, that illumining ministry, that we would understand what it is you've said, why you've said it, how it applies in our lives. Give us teachable spirits this day in alertness of mind, and we'll give you praise and thanks, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, in the two verses preceding the ones I read to you today, we were talking about the fact that God loves his children enough to discipline them. Uh, as a child of God... We've been adopted into his family, and as a heavenly father, he does a number of things for us as a father. He, perfect father, by the way, he loves us, he provides for us, he protects us, but like a good father, he also disciplines us. We cannot have it both ways. He, he's either a good father and going to take it seriously, or he's not a father at all. Uh, and just like with our own real natural parents, there's some things that they did and do that we like, and there's some things that they were supposed to do that we're not so crazy about. I'm not talking about things that they did that weren't right to do, because that'll always be true of some human parent. Never true of God. Everything he does is right. But the fact is, some of the things he does for us as our Heavenly Father, we really like. Some of the things he does for us as our Heavenly Father, theoretically we like, Practically, we say, I'm not so happy about this, <laughs> because you're disciplining me, and you need to discipline me. Uh, divine discipline, we learned, is proof of his love for us. Hebrews 12 makes that plain. And his purpose in disciplining us isn't to make us pay for sin. It isn't to make us atone for it. That's all false teaching. That has no biblical foundation. The idea that somehow you're doing something to do penance for something wrong you've done. I mean, the only thing that solves the sin problem is the cross. And what Jesus did on the cross, sufficient to pay for all sin. God is not disciplining us to make us pay for sin. He's disciplining us to bring us to our senses. So we will start being who he's called us to be and turn from a life pattern that's not in our best interest, certainly not in the best interest of the kingdom. And so he does it to bring us to our senses, not to make us atone or do penance for wrong. And he does what he has to do to bring us to our senses. We talked about the progressive nature of God's discipline. I mean, starts out with just convicting our hearts, but then moves on like the 
a proverbial person with a stubborn donkey who then turns to the two-by-four to get the donkey's attention. God, God will do what's necessary to break through our stubbornness and our increasing callousness about the things that are not right in our life. And we talked about Hebrews 3, verse 13, where we're told that sin hardens us and we become self-deceived the longer we persist in something contrary to the will of God. And so God's discipline, therefore, as a loving father, naturally, logically, would have to become more progressive, more severe, I guess we could even use that word, to break us out of our self-deception, to break us out of our hardness. Thankfully, we serve a God who's going to do that. Uh, I praise God for that. Uh, After the fact, uh, not always happy about it in the middle of the fact, but nonetheless, he does that. And for that, we can thank him. Isn't it wonderful to have a father like that? And God says, listen, if there's a brother or sister that may well be under the disciplinary hand of God to kind of bring them to their senses, pray for them. That's part of what we're called to do. We do not pray for them that somehow God won't discipline them anymore. That would be the worst thing I could pray for somebody. I'm not going to ask God to stop showing his love by trying to bring them to their senses because that would be settling for some momentary comfort instead of an answer and a healing. I said, no, I don't, you don't pray that God's discipline would stop. You pray that they'd start listening to the discipline. That's what you pray for. And you continue on praying for that as long as it takes that people would listen to what God is trying to tell them. And then I ended, by the way, with the mention that not all sickness, not all discouragement, not all that stuff is due to, due to God's discipline. Some of it's just the product of life in a fallen world. So we can't fall into the trap of Job's friends who assumed, well, the only way that we can explain what's happened to you is God's angry with you and he's going to do this stuff. We don't want to fall into that trap. But God does say to us, listen, I'm a heavenly father who loves and takes seriously my role. Therefore, in your life and in the life of other brothers and sisters in Christ, you can count on me not only loving you, protecting you and providing for you, you can count on me disciplining you too. Because I'm interested in the whole ball game to help you grow as a believer. Now today, in these final couple verses, John concludes, under direction of the Holy Spirit, the study in this epistle with some final reminders. He gives us three reminders of things that we can know. And we've been using that word, know. You've seen it come up again and again and again throughout 1 John. So there's three things that we can know And then he ends up, after talking about those, with a final challenge of something that we're supposed to do, or not do, as the case might be. So let's look at these things together. He says, we know, verse 18, that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. First thing, we can know that God will keep us safe in our spiritual struggles. We can know it. Uh, He promises that. The Greek word is oida, adon, meaning objective fact. Whatever our emotions might be at the moment, God's giving us an objective fact. Hey, whatever you feel like, here's the truth, here's the facts. I will be keeping you safe. That safety began by giving you a new heart. Remember the phrase, everyone born of God? That's who he's talking about here. God begins the safety process by giving us a new heart. We've talked about that in 1 John, about how because of salvation we now have a new heart that desires to keep his word. 
Now, there's another law at work in the members of our body, as Romans 7 puts it, at war with that. But nonetheless, now at the deepest level of the person who's truly come to know Christ, God has given them an inclination to obedience, not an inclination toward rebellion. And so that's helping us, you see. God says, listen, this is helping you. Uh, I've helped you to become a new creation. You may stumble, probably will stumble, but the inner inclination is going a different direction now. And that's going to help you. And he says, not only have I done that, but I am going to protect you in two ways in this process of growth. And by the way, isn't that word protect which he uses here? God protects him. Isn't that a precious word? I mean, there's certain words you encounter as you're working through the scripture and say, that's good news. <laughs> he protects. He protects. Uh, Toreo is the Greek word here, which means uh, they use it in some context to, to describe a guard around a, around a camp. It's not only used that way, but it gives you the flavor of the word. God is keeping a guard around us. He's protecting us. He says, listen, this is what's going on. And I'm going to protect you in two ways. Number one, I'm going to protect you from yourself. Well, what do you mean, protect me from myself? Well, in many cases, we're our worst enemy, aren't we? I mean, we, we talk ourselves into sin. We, we follow urges. We do whatever. And God says, I'm going to protect you from yourself. I'm going to protect you from your own frailty. Even though I've changed your heart by being born anew at the deepest level, I know, I know you're still in a warfare. I know there's another law at work in the members of your body fighting against that. And, and therefore, you are your worst enemy in a way. So I'm going to work with you. I'm going to help you. I was thinking of John 17 in this regard. Uh, not, we didn't read this verse today, but, uh, but it was last week. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them. And not one of them was lost. <laughs> that, you know, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. God's in process of guarding us, protecting us, even from ourselves. And as we saw last week, that can mean disciplining us, which we're not happy about. I've never had an episode in the spread of years that my eight children went through, going into their adult years, I never had an episode where any of my kids, after being disciplined, came to me and said, thank you for doing that. Now, I've had some come back later and say, thank you for caring enough not to give up on it. Thank you for doing what was hard. Thank you for tough love. I really need that. But at the moment, all discipline seems painful, as Hebrews 12 says. And I didn't go into a disciplinary time with my children thinking, boy, I really need positive strokes here. I want those kids to be really happy with me because I did whatever. If I did that, I'd be stupid. God, no, no, I go into it saying they're not going to like this. Just like God disciplines us and says they're not going to like this, but they need this. And so he does it. God says, listen, I'm going to discipline you to keep you safe too. So uh, not only a new heart, but a disciplinary action on my part because you're frail. You need it. You need help in this growth process. So I'm going to protect you that way. Secondly, he says, I'm going to protect you from Satan's ability to touch you. He says, God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. 
This is an important phrase, and I want to expand on it because there's a lot of false teaching goes on on this phrase, but I want to explain it to you. Uh, heptomai is the Greek word here translated in the English, touch you or touch us. At least in the ESV, it's translated that way. Literally, this word means to lay hold of and grasp and control. That's, that's what it means. Did you know that Satan can't touch you in that way? Did you know that? Because God said he can't. But then you come back and you say, well, wait a second. <laughs> wait a second. There's a lot of verses in the New Testament warning me about the warfare I'm in. What about Ephesians 6? You know, it's spiritual warfare going around. I need the armor of God. What about, what about 1 Peter 5? He says he stalks about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I mean, how's all that add up? What, 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 is this mutual, sort of internally conflicting? What is he saying here? Well, it's a pretty simple answer, quite frankly. To touch us does not mean that Satan can't attack us. When he says Satan can't touch you, heptomai, he isn't saying by that that he can't try to tempt us, that he can't attack us. He's the enemy of our soul. I mean, the promise is he cannot pull us from the hand of God. He's not saying anything here that somehow he's going to build this little hedge around us so we never have any spiritual warfare. If that was the case, all of us would have thrown our hands up and said, well, I guess I missed out because, you know, even this week had some spiritual warfare, you know. No, no, he's not saying that. But he is saying, even in the midst of the warfare, he can't heptomai. He cannot grab a hold of you and take you from where you are. Now that's good news. That's good news. Somebody says, well, I, I'm glad for that, but I'd kind of like it if he built a hedge around me so I didn't have any of this battle and warfare. And <laughs> say, well, yeah, it's okay to, to have those desires. Just don't expect God to honor such desires because <laughs> he already said I left you in a fallen world and so forth. But he says nothing. Think of, think of how this is fleshed out in John chapter 10. Verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, then he goes on in John 17 and prays for us, because we're left in the world, and we have foes, and Satan's one of them. So... You see, the point is, even in the face of satanic attack, which is very real, he might try to bluff us into saying, I can grab you out of the Lord's hands. God's saying, it's all bluff. No, you can make your life pretty miserable. You can be in the midst of front-line warfare. He can't snatch you out of God's hand. Not because you deserve that he couldn't, but because you have a loving Heavenly Father who says, nope, nope. I like that. I was thinking how that matches up with Romans chapter 8. Classic passage that you know, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? I mean, if he's our Heavenly Father loving, that's about as close as somebody being for you as you're going to get. 
He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to the slaughter. I.e., it's tough here in this world, even as a child of God. It's tough. But then he goes on, he says, No, in all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, even fallen ones, Satan and demonic, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he's saying at the end of 1 John. He's saying, remember that. Don't twist it to say God promises to build a hedge around your life. In fact, I've seen teachings that just build on that. And I'm thinking... Whatever, they're not teaching the word. God's never, but he has promised to be my strength, no matter what the battle is. We don't have to worry about the world, other people, or the enemy. We don't even have to really, in that sense, worry about our own failure and stumbling. Not that God isn't going to discipline us and get us on the right track again. Just simply, nothing can take us from his hand. So he starts out that, and he says, I'm going to end this book by reminding you of that. So this is something you know on the basis of fact. What fact? God's revelatory fact. He, you know, this isn't something you came up with. This is something I revealed. This is true. Okay. Then he says, verse 19, We know we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Second thing I can know, and once again, the Greek word is oida, adon, meaning objective fact. He says, we can know... Who and what actually controls the culture in which we find ourselves? We can know it. John reminds us again of the truth about the world, and it's the Greek word cosmos that we've encountered already in our study of 1 John. It allows us to see the world, the system, the culture we find ourselves in as it really is. Remember, the word cosmos is not referring in the Greek to the mountains and the trees and the seashore and all of that sort of thing. It's referring to culture. It's referring to social system. It's referring to that pervasive mentality that makes up your culture. That's, that's what the things that are important, the things that sees as true and all of that. That's the world. Back in the second chapter, we were warned by God, don't fall in love with that group. Don't fall in love with the cosmos. <laughs> Because uh, if you love the cosmos, you can't really love me, because we're, we're in opposition. You can't, we're, we're as different as you get. So don't love the world or the things that are in the world. Remember the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, and all that. It says, love for those who fall in love with that, don't have love for me. So this is kind of what it comes down to. And in Romans 12, too, we were challenged by God to live un, not conformed. To the culture. By the way, even Romans 12, 2 ought to tell you that the word world here can't refer to the mountains. How do you not get conformed to the mountain or to the, to the forest or to the seashore? I mean, just use logic. How could it mean that? It, it isn't. 
You get conformed to culture, to mindsets, to peer groups. That's what you get conformed to. And he says, don't get conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God. Uh, The world and God, different camps. That's the bottom line. So God's already made that plain. Now he's building on it, almost with the nailing the final nail in the coffin, kind of speaking. He says, now he reminds us of the truth that the world culture we find around us is under the control of the enemy of our souls. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You say, well, he can't mean that. I could think of some nations that, you know, obviously they're pretty bad. They must be under the control of the evil one, but... A whole world? Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's good translation. That's what, that's what it means. You mean even one that might have a Judeo-Christian heritage? Yeah, despite that fact. Uh, all of the world is under his control, fulfilling his purposes. Every culture, not just those in Central Africa, those in Pennsylvania, New York, They all are opposed, ultimately, to God and fulfilling the enemy's strategy. You say, well, sometimes the culture around me says to do what God says to do. And I say, by accident, not by design. On a human level, they've decided this might be the better way for the law to work or something. It's not because they said, oh, God said this. That's what we'll do. And therefore, because they don't do it on the basis of what God says, as soon as they gradually develop some sort of consensus that, no, that's not the best way to do something, they have no qualms at all about doing the opposite. Ever notice that's how our culture operates? (laughs) It's like, well, all of us are now on the right side of history. We're enlightened. We know how it should be. So they were never really committed to what God said in the first place, except by accident. (laughs) just happened to be that culture had inherited some Judeo-Christian dimensions, that's all. But uh, they didn't inherit it because people were committed to the Judeo-Christian God, or because they were regenerate people. So it changes like that. He says, listen, this is the case. And the word whole means whole. It's one of these very definitive words in the Greek. It isn't like partially that, or or sort of the world is sort of that way. No, no, the whole world, meaning all the world's philosophies, all the world's ideologies, all the world's systems, ultimately are under the control of the enemy. And you say, well, how come we don't see witchcraft on every corner? Well, the answer to that is, Second Corinthians tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. It's not always his purpose to foster black degenerative things. What's he foster? Well, it's pretty clear. started in Genesis 3. He went to Adam and Eve and said, you don't need to be in right relationship with God. You can be your own gods. You can even be better off than you currently are. It serves Satan's purposes to foster what we perceive at times to be good if the consequence of doing it is to keep people from being in right relationship with God. But the enemy's been pretty successful in getting people to limit his activity to the occultish things, you know, the pitchfork kind of stuff. 
and they don't see that he can be fostering what is apparently righteous on, on one level, but it's a righteousness built on a rejection of God's rightful role in our lives. His agenda is to turn humanity away from God, not to make humanity go down the tubes, because <laughs> that would be so obvious. Well, people turn from God, now society's a mess. <laughs> no, no, no. He, he's very happy to have things that have the appearance of light, as long as they bring with them the idea you don't really need to be in right relationship with God. You don't really need to repent and believe in the gospel. We serve a great deceiver. And so God says, listen, the whole culture that we're in is that way. Therefore, what the world will see as right often is what God says is wrong. And that puts us, as I said earlier, on the wrong side of history, doesn't it? Because that's the contemporary phrase to describe that. You know, we're, we're still living in the dark ages. No, you're living in the dark, not us. That's uh, why, by the way, conflict and hate from the world system is inevitable for the believer. It's like Jesus, hey, in this world you're going to have tribulation. It wasn't just in first century A.D., ever since. Why? Because it's in opposition to God, that's why. So who will you choose to be conformed to, the world, system, culture, or God? The way, he says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's no true freedom that exists in this world. You know, it's real common in our culture for people to be driven by the desire to be free. You know, we want to be free. And in one sense, we want to be free of tyranny. Fine, you know, let's, let's try to be free of that. Let's try to be free of this. But even if you are free of tyranny, you're not free of yourself. And you're not free of sin. And more importantly, according to this passage, you're not free of the enemy either. You are merely a pawn in his efforts. I was thinking of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in this regard, verse 4. Even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, because in their case, the God of this world, who? Satan, that's who we're talking about. The God of this world's blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ. All right? The great illusion of humanity is that they are free and can be free, apart from the one who sets them free. There's only one who sets people free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And apart from the Son setting you free, you are not free. Even if you, in much bravado, protest, well, I'm free... It's not the way. You're not. You're, you're, you, have, you have nothing to resist Satan's efforts in you, apart from the one who is greater than he that is in us, if we've come to know Christ. Well, thankfully, we also know from other scriptures that Satan is the ruler, but just for a season. I mean, he, the world that we currently are in, that culture, that system, yeah, it's under his power. Thankfully, Lord Jesus is returning. <laughs> And, and this all will change, you see. The equation shifts at that point. So always remind yourself of this when the world starts to look appealing. Or worse, when you start to assume too much solution to humanity's problems is going to come from legislative efforts. Does that mean we shouldn't be trying to foster righteousness? No, of course not. We should be fostering whatever we can. But brothers and sisters, there's no answer 
for society or individual people apart from salvation. That's, that's where salvation... It, we could make the, the country as Judeo-Christian as we could make it, and people go into hell for eternity. Don't forget, as we've shared before, it was in the perfect Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve fell. They, you're not going to get any culture better than that. That didn't keep them from falling and rebelling against God. Well, he says, And we can know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Then we're in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, he's the true God in eternal life. Third thing, he's reminding us, because of God's word, because he's a God who has spoken, we can know objectively, oida, facts, we can know who Jesus is. We can know why he came. We can know whether we know him. Remember, that's been one of the themes in First John. How can we know that we know him? Well, God, we can know. God has given us information to make that possible. It's been the main thing. We know who he is. The word is made flesh and dwelt among us. What word? The one who was with God in the beginning, who was God, the very son of God, came into the world. We know the incarnation, therefore, is the central truth upon which a gospel builds, which is why the whole epistle started out talking about the incarnation. There is no solution to sin apart from the incarnation. There's no solution for sin apart from the cross and resurrection either. But no cross would have worked had it not been the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> Everything bridged from that wonder of the Son of God, the very God intervening in history, to live for us. We know the truth of why he came, who he is, why he came. He's given us understanding, it says here. The onia, it means, uh, is the translated by this word understanding. It means have the capacity of knowing. Now, that's the ability to see facts and sort of fit them together. Uh, and God says he's given us understanding too. Why? Because the Holy Spirit convicts our heart about it. He doesn't force us, as we talked about, to respond to it. But no one can stand right before God and say, well, I just couldn't understand it. He says, oh, no. I set my Holy Spirit who takes those truths, and he convicts your heart because he convicts the whole world about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. No, no, I, I've given the common grace of understanding to people, but they had to make a choice related to that. Uh, He says, no, why did he do all of that? God says, well, you can know that too. What? My great goal in all this was so we could have a relationship again. You're an enemy to you with me. I created you for a relationship with me. Your sin has separated you from me. I'm doing all of these things because I made you for myself. You're not going to be happy. You're not going to find an answer to who you are and what life's all about unless you're in right relationship with me. I did all of this so you could be in right relationship with me. So that you could know me. We can know him who is true. And by the way, that phrase in that sentence, that verse, changes from oida, which is what he's been using, adon, meaning factual stuff, to a form of nosko, which we talked about earlier, has to do with experiential knowledge, relational knowledge. He says, I gave you all of these facts so that you could build on the facts and actually have a relationship with me. So you could know Christ, not just know about him, so that you could know in experience, you can have a relationship with the God who's really there. Because remember, God wants relationship with us, not religion from us. 
A lot of people going through all of their life thinking what God's interested in is religion from them. So they're going through these religious things and are doing it because they think that's what God wants. And God's saying, well, that's, that's not solving anything. I want relationship. I, and the only way to have that is for you to turn to my son who died for you. And you have that, I'll save you. I'll give you a new life. And we'll be now, I'll adopt you into my family. We'll have relationship. He says, those are the things that we can know. Those are wonderful things, aren't they? I mean, good way to end the book. Well, he's not quite ending, because in verse 21 he says, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Like the last warning. It's like, oh yeah, by the way. (laughs) Sometimes that's the way parents are too. It's like, after they cover a lot of other stuff, they say, okay, no, well, by the way. (laughs) You know, like, here's, here's the point. Don't forget, you could, even if you forget some other things, don't forget this. You know, this, this is the time you're supposed to come home, I used to tell to my daughters, you know. And to my sons, too, you know. <laughs> After I said other things, don't forget. And uh, that's what this is like. He says, hey, don't forget. Don't forget. Keep yourselves from idols. Here's the question. How are you doing on the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Idolatry is defined as worshiping anything or anyone in the place of God. Here's the point. If you are not loving God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, you're loving something. You can't be without love. You can't be without doing that. You're going to be focused on something, and you're going to be an idolater if you're not this. And God says, keep yourself from idols. He wasn't just saying, don't stop off at this place where there's this brass idol that's been built. I mean, obviously, that's by clearly it would be not to do, but that's not what this is about. I mean, that's pretty, that's like Christianity 101, you know, don't don't go over there. Now, this is deeper. He's saying, let's make sure that you're serious about your faith, because otherwise you're committing idolatry. And another way that people commit idolatry is by having a false image of God in their mind, and even in the face of the Bible challenging it, persisting with that false image. And I talk to you often about the person that says, well, I just don't picture God that way. And my response is, well, that's what idolatry means. (laughs) You, You may well be telling me the truth, you don't picture God that way, but that's what idolatry is. God lovingly gave us the facts, the oida, you know, the adon, this is who God is. So if, if you don't see him right, change your head. I mean, stop looking at God this way, look at God this way. Say, well, no, I, I kind of like to think of God this way. What that means is I kind of like to be an idolater. Let's call spade a spade. If somebody persists in the face of biblical challenge and says, well, I just don't like to think of God that way. I'm going to think of him this way. They are guilty of idolatry as much as if they had a little stone or brass idol that they worshipped secretly. Because it's idolatry to not align with who God self-reveals himself to be in the scriptures. So... Keep yourself from idols. The only way to do that isn't to have a mechanism in your car dash that has a light go off and it says, oh, don't go over there because there's an idol set up. Uh, 
Here's how you do it. You will not be an idolater to the fact that you're a biblically literate person and acting on what God has self-revealed about himself. This isn't a question of sincerity. It's a question of discipline. You're not going to cut it when you go before God and say, well, listen, I, I was very sincere about this false picture I had of you. I really thought you had long white hair and whatever. God says, I don't care whether you were sincere or not. The prophets of Baal were sincere. They cut themselves and bled trying to get Baal to hand. I mean, sincerity is not what it's about. Although, if you know the truth, you better be sincere about it. But sincerity doesn't mean you know the truth. Sincerity doesn't gain anything with God. Truth is what gains something with God. And acting on that truth, he says, be biblical people. Not just academically, but volitionally. Be biblical people. Keep yourselves from idols. Then you come before God and you say, well, you know, you ended that book by taking away a lot of options for me, Lord. (laughs) And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good thing. You and I specialize in options that lead to dead ends. I'm not going to ask you for a recounting of how that worked out for you, but that's pretty much the story of humanity even redeemed humanity. And then we come to the dead end and we say, shouldn't have taken that road. And God says, yeah, yeah, I was was telling you that. Yeah, but I thought it was a shortcut to happiness. Well, it doesn't work that way. It's no shortcut. No shortcut. Thank you, Lord, for this time together on this day to share, to worship, to learn, to pray. Plant your word in each of our lives not just for intellectual information and curiosity, but so that we might align with your ways and truth. And we'll thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.